Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. If you remember, Zechariah is the prophet, young guy, who was going to and is encouraging the nation of Israel. The exiles are returning phase by phase back to the land of Israel, and they were given responsibilities. Zerubbabel is going to rebuild the temple. Ezra would come back, and he would rebuild the faith. And Nehemiah would come back, and he would rebuild the wall. And over the course of these three different stages, God kept encouraging them. One through the prophet Haggai, um, more as an exhorter. You better get back to work. And then comes along three months later, Zechariah, with eight visions. We studied those visions as an opportunity for us to learn about the character of God and the great eight great ministry principles that we can apply to our lives. And now, as we approach the latter end of Zechariah, there are two last very important things that Zechariah wants to get across to us. The first coming of Christ, that's Zechariah chapter 9 through 11, and then the second coming of Christ which will be Zechariah chapters 12 through 14. (coughs) I gag as I am about to say it. We're going to attempt to get through Zechariah 9 through 11 tonight. Um, We will not be here till midnight, I promise. But what we're going to see as we approach Zechariah chapter 9, 10 and 11, is that what God will do is give world history through his perspective He will give world history through his perspective, and he will highlight a few things in history that will emphasize the visions that were given to Zechariah in the first few chapters. And what God is going to do is let us know in Zechariah 9, 10, and 11 that he's in control. And if we, as we see that these particular prophecies have already come to pass in the manner of which exactly God said they would, we can trust as we look forward to the second coming that what Zechariah has told us will also come to pass exactly as the prophet, God had spoken to the prophet and then the prophet spoke to us. Let's take a look as we dig on in into Zechariah chapter 9. And we are going to be discussing in these first few chapters, in 9, 10, and 11, the first coming of Christ. And what the Lord is going to do is prepare us for that first coming with an event, a historical world event. And then he's going to allow us to see the coming of Christ. Then we're going to walk into events that happened after the coming of Christ and, of course, end in the great tragedy of the Roman government bringing down the Israeli nation. And so let's dig on in to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 1, the burden of the the word of the Lord. Now, whenever the prophet has to begin with the burden of the word of the Lord, he's about to communicate something heavy. And what we know about the word of God is that it is bitter and it is sweet. 
And when you, sometimes it will hit you hard. And how many of you have been sitting listening to a sermon and you've been smacked right in the jaw? Like, oh my goodness, that one got me. And then sometimes you'll be listening to a sermon and your heart is all fuzzy and warm because it's like, oh wow, that really touched me. Well, what the prophet is getting across is what I'm about to say is going to be quite a challenge. Now, before we dig in, I need for you to remember Zechariah is living in the Medo-Persian Empire. The next empires are going to be the Greek Empire and then the Roman Empire. But Zechariah is living in the Medo-Persian Empire. For him to communicate the things that he's about to communicate would be like me saying, in 20 years, the Bahamas is going to be a world power. The Bahamas is going to be a military might. The Bahamas is going to take over the world. Now, you guys might, you're not laughing. I wish you would because it's rather funny that 325,000 people, that's all that we exist as in these little, uh, in these little islands over on the southern tip of Florida, would be taking over the world. And so what Zachariah is going to be communicating would be like me saying that the Bahamas is going to take over the world. No one would ever think that those little Greek islands would be able to take over the world. No one would ever think, Rome? Who's Rome? And what? I don't even know who they are. So you have to understand, though we look back on history and see how true these things are, Zechariah was watching history through God's perspective, and it hadn't even happened yet. So let's take a look. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 1. The burden, of the, the burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, its resting place. For the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. And against Hamath, which borders on it, and against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre built a, herself a tower, heaped up a, a silver like the dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out and he will destroy her her power in the sea, and she will be devoured by fire. Now, stop there for just a moment. Zechariah is letting us know something about upcoming world history. He is revealing to us history from an Israeli perspective. And so, he is a Jewish prophet communicating Jewish things to a Jewish group. Now keep that in mind as we speak about Damascus and Tyre, as we speak about these, Hamath, these cities and city-states, these were the city-states that God used to discipline the nation of Israel prior to the exile of Babylon. But if you remember, they went too far. Do you remember the vision when God said, I allowed you to punish the nation, but I'm angry with you because you went too far. And God is a just God. And so what he is doing is now disciplining these nations who thought that they were impenetrable. And God has caused a man by the name of Alexander the Great to rise up as a world power. And by the age of 33 years old, out of those Greek islands would raise up a man that would conquer the entire world and make a one world 
government. His name, Alexander the Great. He would come into Syria and demolish it. Damascus and demolish it. He left nothing unsaid or undone. In fact, Tyre, that great city-state on an island just off the coast of Asia Minor, this city-state, which became one of the wealthiest city-states in the world at the time because they were able to take the little mollusk and pull purple out of it and make a very strong purple dye, which was a sign of royalty. And all the Romans, all the peoples of the time, excuse me, wanted to wear this purple dye in their clothes. They became wealthy. Their streets were like gold, and they had silver in abundance. In fact, When Nebuchadnezzar II tried to invade this island city-state, he tried for 13 years and could not get, get through. Tyre thought they were wise. They thought no one could get through to them until... Alexander the Great. And what took 13 years of complete failure for the Babylonian Empire, within seven months, Alexander the Great conquered this island city-state of Tyre. He actually made a tunnel from the land to the island, and while the Tyrians were mocking the Macedonians for thinking that they could conquer Tyre, they began to realize when his ships showed up on the island and conquered. In fact, Alexander was so mad at the Tyronians that he destroyed them, led 13,000 into slavery, and 2,500, excuse me, slaughtered 13,000 of them and led 2,500 into slavery and completely eradicated the entire city state. Excuse me, the entire city state. Whenever I say anything that sounds like Siri, she responds. Alexander the Great is being spoken of here. Take a look as we continue. Ascalon shall see it in fear. Gaza also shall be very sulfur, and Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abominations from between his teeth. But he who remains, and what he's speaking of is the fact that they, they attacked Israel when, and went beyond what God had intended for them to do. But he who remains, even he shall be for our God, and shall be like a leader in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite. I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. Alexander conquered the world in such a record amount of time that in Daniel chapter 7, you can write it down, Daniel chapter 7, verse 6, Daniel refers to Alexander as a leopard. Uh, his empire is referred to as a leopard. And all Zechariah is doing is writing down from north to south the conquests of Alexander on the Mediterranean coast there in Israel. But God is letting us know he's in absolute control. He is the one that is allowing Alexander to conquer this way because the nations that came against Israel are now being judged. 
They're now being judged. God, however, God supernaturally protects Jerusalem from Alexander. Take a look if you would. Go back with me if you would. Um, At verse 7, I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abominations from between his teeth. But he who remains, even he shall be for our God and shall be like a leader in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him, speaking of Alexander, who passes by and him who returns. Alexander would go right by Jerusalem and go to conquer Egypt and he would return. Zechariah said this. Now let me give you a little bit of world history. When the Jews in Jerusalem heard of Alexander's conquest as he was coming from the north down to the south, the high priest had a dream. Historical fact. And he called for a fast. And the Lord revealed to him in a dream that they were to dress in white and welcome Alexander. Alexander, on his way down to Jerusalem, he's bothered by the Jews because they refused to pay tribute. But when they showed up in white, he was so impressed by their greeting that he stood down his weapons and chose not to destroy the city. Alexander, excuse me, the high priest of the time, took Alexander into Jerusalem showed him Daniel chapter 7 of how God had foreordained that he was the leopard that would take over the world in a very quick period of time. And Alexander sacrificed to the God of Israel for the scriptures that were given. That is a historical fact. Now you have to understand, Alexander was not a believer. He was superstitious. And so he sacrificed to the God of Israel, not because he became a believer. He wanted every God that he could have on his side. And so he just, yeah, you want a lamb? Here's a lamb. I I like that that's in scripture about me and that you're pointing out Daniel 7. How did Daniel know about me? Because God is omniscient and God knows all things. People ask me over the Christmas season, how did the Magi know to leave the uh, Persian area and come to the nation of Israel? Let us not forget that Daniel started the Magi. He was head of the Magi, and his books were in Persia, and they studied those books, and they simply followed the prophet Daniel's truth and came to Israel to see the Messiah. You see, We may not have all of history in the Bible, but we do have historical facts that we can link these things together. Now, you have to understand something about Alexander. Alexander brought the entire world under one government and made the entire world learn how to speak Greek. Now, take a look at verse 6. Excuse me. Um, Yes, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king, not speaking about Alexander any longer, but the king of the Jews, is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now we have the announcement 
of the coming king of Israel foretold. That he would ride in Jerusalem on a donkey. We see this fulfilled in Matthew's gospel. John's gospel also reports this very same truth. And you might ask, okay, why does Zechariah go from announcing Alexander the Great to the presentation of the king of kings? Well, it's mentioned here because Alexander is one who brought fear, but the Messiah is one that will bring joy. Alexander sought to conquer, but the Messiah came to deliver. Alexander rode a mighty horse, but the Messiah would come in riding gentle or humbly on a donkey. Alexander was greeted by the high priest, but the Messiah is greeted by peasants and rejected by the high priest. Alexander, this king of kings on the world, would slay his enemies, but the Messiah, he would die for them. And what God is doing is comparing a worldly leader. Now, you need to remember this as we go into Zechariah chapter 11. Here is what a worldly leader does. He is out for himself. He is out to destroy. But I want you to see who the God leader is. Now, go with me at verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He, speaking of the king of kings, he shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, if you remember, the prophets only saw mountain peaks of history. They did not see the valleys of the church. And here in verse 9, In between verse 10, we have the entire church age, the church age that we are living in. Verse 9, the first coming of Christ. Verse 10, the second coming of Christ. And we know it to be the second coming of Christ for several reasons. When Matthew recorded this particular uh, verse and when John recorded this particular verse in their Gospels, they stopped at verse 9 and did not repeat verse 10. They knew that Christ would come again. The angels in Acts chapter 1 made it very clear the same way that he left will be the same way that he came back. And when Matthew and John were writing their gospels, they recognized that verse 9 indicated his first coming, but verse 10 indicates his second coming. And in between that first and second coming, we are now living in what we call the age of grace. The entire church age is found between verses 9 and verses 10. The entire uh, 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 church age is found in Isaiah 9, between verses 6 and 7. In Isaiah 61, verse 2, the entire church age is a comma. The prophets did not see the church age. That's why Paul, in the New Testament, calls the church a mystery. A mystery. You see, we have to keep in mind that the Jewish prophets saw the Jewish future. And so when Paul was able to discover the church age, he calls it a mystery. Let's go on. Verse 11. We now are approaching a neck, a different historical event. Alexander, 
would bring the entire world, Alexander would bring the entire world under one world government and would make the entire world speak Greek. Our Bible is written in Greek. It is the most, uh, the language, the Greek language helps us understand how they felt when they spoke it. What that we're trying to communicate, the tenses that are there, the amount of information that we get from the Greek language helps us feel the Bible, not just read the Bible. So when the Bible says that it is a living document, not only is it the rhema spoken word of God, it is written in a language that we can fully understand. So sometimes when you hear me say something sarcastic, because the Greek has a sarcastic way to put it out there. So I'm not just being sarcastic. It's the way that it's being recorded in Scripture. There's a passion to the Greek language that helps us understand the feeling of what's going on in the particular text. Then the Romans would come along and build all the roads prior to the coming of Christ. So we have one language and roads. This provided for the gospel to be spoken to every known person as the Romans. Not every road would lead to Rome. Every road would provide the opportunity for the gospel to be preached. Amen? So he now says in this next event, okay, the next event that would happen after the Messiah, uh, uh, after Jesus would come in his first coming. So this is another event. And as for you, excuse me, before the coming of Christ, verse 11, as for you also, because of the blood of your covenant. So speaking about the Mosaic covenant in Exodus chapter 24 and God's promised people, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold. God is calling the exiles to come back to build the nation. He is telling them the king of kings is coming. Come back, build the nation. The Jews did not want to leave the Babylonian Medo-Persian empire. They'd established lives there. They'd married, they'd mixed, they had businesses. They didn't want to come back. But God is telling them, come back. I want to be faithful to the covenant because I'm God and I made the promise. Now, after the death of Alexander, there was a breakup in the Greek empire. It was given, broken up into four different empires. There was the Seleucid dynasty to the north, and there was the Ptolemy dynasty to the south of Israel. These were the two empires, these were two of the four empires of the Greek world. The Bible hardly ever talks about the other two empires because they had nothing to do with Israel. Remember, Jewish prophets speaking to a Jewish nation from a Jewish perspective. And so the dynasties that you hear in regards to the north and the south of Israel are the Seleucid dynasty and the Ptolemy dynasty. Well, after the death of Alexander and several generations later, there would be a Seleucid king who would be born, and he was bent on making those Jews repent of their Jewish religion. You may have heard his name before. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes was not a great guy. He wanted to Hellenize or make the entire world Greek. 
And those Jews were a problem. How dare you circumcise your children? You're marking and scarring the body that the gods gave you. Why would you do that? So no more circumcision of your little Jewish boys. No longer hurt your children like that. I don't want to see that happening under my control. He bought the priesthood. And he considered the priesthood to be a governmental system that can control the people. And he used religion to control people. That's what Antiochus Epiphanes did. In fact, he decreed the end of Jewish religious practices and the worship of any Greek god, uh, and that everyone had to worship Greek gods. And he went so far to sacrifice a pig on the altar. Okay, that, I don't know if you know this, but Jews don't eat bacon. They don't enjoy pork loin. They don't have maple bacon donuts. And they don't have pepperoni cheese pizzas, okay? They just don't do it. When you go to Israel today, you cannot get a cheese burger, except you go to those miserable Gentile areas and you get a cheese burger. You cannot cook a goat in its mother's milk. And so cheese and beef or any kind of meat cannot go together. Antiochus Epiphanes, he thought this was ridiculous. But there were some very pious religious Jews and they revolted. One of them very famous, a man by the name of Mattathias Maccabee. Mattathias Maccabee refused to worship the Greek gods. And when one of his Jewish neighbors, when he stood there and the Seleucid dynasty was saying, you'd better worship the gods, Mattathias and his five sons, they stood there like this. But one of his Jewish buddies went from behind the line and said, well, I'll do it. So Mattathias dealt with it like any good human being. He just speared him to death. Well, that's a problem. Mattathias and his five sons, they ran off to the wilderness and they began a revolt that would last over a hundred years in Israel. And this dynasty was known as the Hasmonean dynasty that would lead all the way to Herod the Great. They, for a hundred years, would expand the land of Israel to be as much land as Solomon had, and they would rule the nation of Israel, and the Greeks succumbed to their leadership. And Zechariah lets us know. Take a look. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope, verse 12. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. For I have bent Judah my bow. I've done this. Fitted the bow with Ephraim. So I've used the northern and the southern kingdom. I'm doing this. I'm empowering my people to go to war. And raised up your sons, O Zion. Against your sons. Now remember, the Greek empire didn't exist when Zechariah was writing this. And he says, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a, of a mighty man. God was going to empower 
Jude, uh, Mattathias Maccabeus and his five sons, he was going to use them. God was going to use them as his arrow and as his bow, and he would defeat the Greeks once again because Antiochus Epiphanes went too far. And God puts him in check. Verse 14. Then the Lord will be seen over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord will blow the trumpet and go with whirlwinds from the south. And what Zechariah is letting them know, it's God who is doing this. The Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue with sling stones. So I want you to understand, the Greek soldiers were fitted to the hilt. Swords and, and uh, 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 help me, shields. Strong word, I couldn't believe it. Shields and bows and arrows. I mean, they were trained as Greek soldiers, and you've got these Jews doing guerrilla warfare with slingshots. We got them. We're talking about David and Goliath kind of empowerment where the Jews are coming out of the woodworks. And what you need to know, the Jews invented guerrilla warfare by God. And God defeats this great army of people by God's power, and it was with slingshots. You had to look at this and go, all the eyes are on the Lord. How in the world is this happening? God. Take a look. Verse, um, uh, they shall devour and subdue with sling stones. Verse 15, they shall drink and roar as with wine. They shall be filled with blood like uh, basins, like the corners of the altar. In other words, they're going to be celebrating victory after victory after victory. The Lord their God will save them in the day. It's God that's doing it as the flock of his people. For they shall be like the jewels of a crown, like lifted like a banner over the, his land. For how great is its goodness and how great its beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. What God is saying is he is going to allow the Jewish nation to prosper so tremendously that there will be so much celebration that there'll be more than enough food, there'll be more than enough wine, and this was wine and grain were a symbol of wealth and prosperity. And in the Hasmonean dynasty for over a hundred years, leading to Herod the Great, Israel prospered in a magnificent way. Going into chapter 10, ask the Lord for rain. In the time of the latter rain, the Lord will make flashing clouds. He will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. For idols speak delusions. The diviners envision lies and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wend their way like sheep. They are in trouble because there is no shepherd. If you remember, Antiochus Epiphanes wanted the Jews to worship Greek gods. And God is saying here, don't give credit to Greek gods for what's happening uh, in Israel. This is me. Talk to me. Don't talk to the Greek gods. And imagine Mattathias Maccabees reading this and going, he's right. This is the Lord. And we're going to give him glory. And we're going to talk to him. And we're going to trust him for his power. And he did. And he overcame the Greek 
world, and Israel was left alone for a hundred years. Now, the problem is, if you remember, Antiochus Epiphanes, he bought out, he bribed, as well as the priests themselves bribed to become the high priest. They wanted to be the rulers. They wanted power. They wanted to be able to control the people. They wanted all the money. They wanted all the power. They wanted all the prominence. And God calls them out and he says, they're in trouble because there is no shepherd. Do you see the problem? The leaders of Israel had led them to worship Greek gods. It broke God's heart. Because any time we worship any other thing than God, he's grieved. Now you might say, I only worship God. But the evaluation of our worship is best suited with the litmus test of where do we spend our time? Where do we spend our money? Where do we spend our time? Where do we spend our money? You see, when we begin to look at where we spend our time and where we spend our money, we might find who we truly worship. We might find what might be in front of God. I really love my Toyota Tacoma. I do. And when I make my monthly payment, I actually enjoy it. No, I've never enjoyed a car payment. But every time that I look at my Toyota Tacoma, I got it four years ago. I'm this close to paying it off. And every time I make that payment, I feel good about it. Today, I'm driving down the mountain. It's raining. Rocks are coming down. You know where the story is going. A rock came down, and it hit my Toyota Tacoma. An internal tear happened. (laughs) My spirit was so disheartened. Why so downcast, oh my soul? Put your hope in your Tacoma. Like, I mean, something happened when this rock hit my Tacoma. So much so, I couldn't even pull over the side of the road to look at it. I drove all the way to the church before I could even look at it. When I got out of the car, I prayed. And then I began to realize, Chet, you have a problem with this Toyota Tacoma. This is coming before, this has changed your heart. This has changed your attitude. Like this is an idol. It is time to cast this thing down. So I got out of the car all confident until I saw the dent. And I realized I still have a lot of spiritual work to do in my heart. I use it as a silly illustration, but only to help us reflect on our own lives. For truly, none of us are going to take a wooden thing, put it in our house, and go to it. But is it possible that when we walk out to our Toyota Tacoma, I'll pay for you. I'll wash you. I'll take care of you. I'll vacuum you every day. I don't have time to serve the Lord because you need my attention. And if we stop for just a moment and realize it grieves God's heart, 
It's a problem with God. Take a look what he says in verse 3. My anger is kindled against the shepherds. Do you know God gets angry? Remember when Jesus did the whole turn the table thing? And I will punish the goat herds. Okay, so he's angry and he's going to punish. And we're going to see his punishment in chapter 11. So hold your horses and for the Lord of hosts will visit his flock the house of Judah, and will make them as his royal horse in the battle. We begin to see God's heart here when Jesus says, if you cause one of these little ones to sin, you might as well tie a millstone around your neck and jump into the ocean yourself. It grieves God. So gentlemen, don't deceive any of our Calvary Chapel South Bay girls. Because we get upset. So does God. And ladies, don't deceive any of our Calvary Chapel South Bay boys. Because we get upset. Now you say, wait a second, Pastor Chet, that's a little heavy. God gets angry when we cause people to sin. And we should take that with sincerity. That wasn't in my notes, so we'll just keep going. (laughs) From him, verse 4, comes the cornerstone. From him, the tent peg. From him, the battle bow. From him, every ruler together. He's now speaking of himself. And he says of himself, I'm the cornerstone. I'm the peace of the building that every other piece relies on in order for this building to stand. That's the cornerstone. I'm the tent peg. I'm the stability of this nation. I'm the battle bow. I'm the strength and the protection of this nation. I'm the ruler, the true king. And he says, as the true king... They shall be like mighty men who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and the riders on the horses shall be put to shame. This prophecy has been fulfilled when the Maccabees overcame the Greek world. Now, you may be upset by that. What do you mean God is fulfilling prophecy and it's not in the United States of America? I mean, he only fulfills prophecy when I'm around. The fact that this prophecy was fulfilled exactly like God said it would gives us hope that everything we're about to read is also true. And in this moment, God takes the history and he catapults us into a prophetic moment. And I don't want you to think like, where are the prophets going? They're all over the place. No, no, no. This is God. Do you remember Jesus? It's Luke chapter 10. You can look it up later. In Luke chapter 10, verse 18, the disciples come back from their mission trip and they tell Jesus, it was so cool. Even demons were listening to us. Like we were rebuking the demon of the closet and the demon of the this and the demon of that and the demons were just listening to us. And Jesus responds. He says, no, no, you need to rejoice of what God is doing. And then the Bible says he takes the history, he's catapulted prophetically, and he says, and I saw Satan cast out of heaven. 
He's in the historical moment of the disciples returning, but because he's God and all-knowing, he's catapulted into the prophetic and the future. The Maccabees are historical, but it, it catapults God into the future and the prophetic. The Maccabees and this hundred-year sampling of a rule where the nation was as much land as the land of Solomon, where it was proliferating and where there was so much glory and God was being glorified in the nation of Israel, it catapults God to the future where one day he will rule and reign in the millennial kingdom. Take a look. Verse 6, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I'll bring them back because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not, they had not been cast them aside, I had not cast them aside. For I'm the Lord their God. I'll hear them. Those of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their hearts shall rejoice as if with wine. Yes, their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I'll whistle for them and gather them, for I'll redeem them, and they shall increase as they once increased. Do we not see this happening today in the land of Israel? Do we not see the nation growing? Because God said it would. I will sow them among the peoples, and they shall remember me in far countries. They shall live together with their children, and they shall return. I will also bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And whenever the word speaks about Egypt and Assyria, it's speaking about the known world at the time. So what he's saying is, I'm going to bring them back from the world. I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon. This Gilead and Lebanon is speaking about the entire promise of land that God told uh, uh, the children of Israel that they would have. And so what this is catapulting us to is the millennial kingdom because Israel has never owned all of the land that they uh, were promised. And so what he's saying is, I'm going to gather them and I'm going to give them the land. Ezekiel lets us know there is a gathering in unbelief that is happening today. God is bringing the Jews supernaturally back to their nation. Jews from all around the world, Ethiopia to Russia to Europe to the United States of America are leaving their homelands and going back to Israel. That's because of God. Let me explain. Have you ever noticed that in and out is supernatural? No, for real. Just stay with me. There could be five guys and in and out. Why is five guys drive through completely empty and in and out is an hour long. It's the Lord. The other day, we went to Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A was here, and there was McDonald's here. Chick-fil-A line went forever. Nobody was at McDonald's. You know why? Closed on Sunday. My Chick-fil-A. They're making a decision to honor God. And there's something about that that God is honoring. And so no wonder McDonald's line is empty and Chick-fil-A, look on the bottom of it, in and out cup. John 3.16. 
making a decision. We're going to honor God. Five guys, get a little Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 on the bottom of your cups. Now, this could be a good business deal for you. Now, I'm not saying to do that. There's a heart that's attached to that. You understand what I was just saying. And so the children of Israel are going to be given the land. But first, God is gathering them. Then they'll be giving the land. Speaking of the millennial kingdom, until no more room is found for them, verse 11. He shall pass through the sea with affliction and strike the waves of the sea. All the depths of the river shall dry up. Now, what you should read this is the Red Sea. Do you remember when the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea with no problem? They walked on dry ground. And what God is saying is, I'm going to remove all obstacles for the Jews to return. Then the pride of Assyria shall be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. In other words, the world government is going to come down in the millennial kingdom. So I will strengthen them in the Lord, and they shall walk up and down in my name, says the Lord. God is grieved. He is grieved that the shepherds have led them astray. And what God is showing us here is, look what I offer. I offer peace. I offer prosperity. I offer success. Now, I'm not speaking about a faith movement. I'm talking about an internal kingdom that though there may be chaos all around me, I've got a peace that passes understanding. And though I may be as broke as a church mouse, I am the richest man in the world because I have the kingdom. You see, the truth of the matter that God is trying to get across, I'm grieved at the way that the shepherds had led my people to worship Greek gods. Look what I offer. But the Jews did not take this warning. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. Before we dig quickly into chapter 11, Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 23, look what Jesus said at the end of his ministry career. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often, look at the heart of God, I wanted to gather you, your children together, as a hen gathers her chick under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Ouch. Jesus' way to the cross, he told the daughters of Jerusalem to weep for themselves. Because in that historical moment, he was catapulted into a prophetic time. A time that the Jews did not know would come upon them. But they had made a decision in John chapter 19. Caesar is our king. That was the prophetic statement that they said. So God said, okay, if you do not want me as your shepherd and you have chosen Rome to be your shepherd, then I will remove my hand and let you have what you want. Zechariah chapter 11, take a look at Rome. Open your doors, O Lebanon. 
that fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O cypress, for the cedar has fallen. Because the mighty trees are ruined, wail, O oaks of Bashan, for thick forest has come down. There is the sound of wailing shepherds, speaking of the leaders that led them astray. For their glory is in ruins. There is the sound of roaring lions, for the pride of Jordan is in ruins. Let me tell you something about the Romans. When they invaded a rebellious nation, They left nothing standing. And God is letting the children of Israel know if Caesar is your king because you've rejected the true shepherd, the Messiah, there will be wailing shepherds in Jerusalem. The very ones, Annas Annas and Caiaphas, who made a rejection of the Messiah, who led the children astray as they paid off, just like Menelaus did with Antiochus Epiphanes for the high priesthood. He says, if you want Rome, I will give you Rome. And Rome, in 70 AD, came into Jerusalem and destroyed them. They tore down the temple where the cedars of Lebanon had used to be built and the oaks of Bashan had been used to build. And they burned it down to the ground. They destroyed Israel and scattered Israel all over the European world of the time. In fact, the last stand of the Jews was at Masada. It was a fortress just outside of the Dead Sea, that Herod built to protect himself from invaders. And there on Masada, they withstood the Roman Empire for about a year. But then 960 Jews made a decision that they would rather die as free people than live as slaves under Rome. And 960 people killed themselves so they would not be slaves of Rome. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you. But you were not willing. They brought judgment upon themselves by pronouncing Caesar as our king. Now here's where we close. Thus says the Lord my God, speaking to Zechariah now, feed the flock for slaughter. In other words, hey, Zechariah, I want you to take care of the children of Israel that are being taken advantage of by their wicked wailing shepherds, whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt. Those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, for I'm rich. And, and excuse me, blessed be the Lord, for I'm rich. And their shepherds do not pity them, for I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. But indeed, I will give hand unto hand of his king. They shall attack the land, and I will not deliver them from their hands. Let me explain what's happening. These high priests and these leaders of Israel are leading the nation into sin. But God has not judged them. And so they're saying, oh, look how the Lord is blessing us. We are leading the people to their slaughter, and God is making us wealthy. God is making us rich. He's not mad at us. He's cool with us. There's been no judgment. And God says, I am long-suffering, but there's a limit. You see, the devil's lie to each and every one of us is this. You see, God's not mad. You can get away with it. 
He'll forgive you. His lie is this. You're the only one that can get away with this. Don't worry about it. But God in his long suffering disciplines his kids. And he is disciplining the nation of Israel. Zechariah responds and he says, so I fed the flock. I became the good shepherd. I fed the flock for slaughter, in particular the poor of the flock. I took for myself two staffs. He says, in other words, I'm going to be a good shepherd. The one I called beauty and the other I called bonds. And I fed the flock. I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them and their soul also abhorred me. Do you see this? I hated these people that led my people astray. I loathed them. What a tragic thing for God to say about a human being. I loathed them. I loathed what they were doing. Now we see something happen. Because they rejected the Messiah, verse 9, all of a sudden switches. Then I said, I will not feed you. Let what is dying die, and what is perishing perish. Let those who are left eat, eat, eat each other's flesh, which they did. And I took my staff, beauty, or my favor, and I cut it in two that I might break the covenant which I made with all the peoples. In other words, okay, you don't want my favor, Israel? You want Rome? I'm going to allow Rome to give you everything they've got. I'm moving my favor from you. So it was broken on that day. Thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. In other words, he's speaking of the remnant. There's always a believing remnant of the Jews. And he says, they saw that what I'm saying is absolutely true. And they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were saved. Then I said to them, if it's agreeable to you, give me my wages. And so we know that Zechariah had done this shepherd thing for about a month. And so they decide to give them his wages. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. How embarrassing. Let me tell you why. In Exodus chapter 24, 30 pieces of silver was worth a damaged slave. So what they're saying to Zechariah is this, you're not worth anything. Here's 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that princely price. He's speaking with a lot of sarcasm here. That princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Then I cut in two my other staff, bonds that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. What do you read here? The fulfillment of Scripture when Judas was paid 30 pieces of silver for the rejection of Messiah, and he threw it in the temple, and they bought the potter's field to where Judas went and hung himself. The rejection of Jesus caused the destruction of the nation. When we get back, we're going to take a look at the next shepherd. And we're going to look at him in detail. And the Lord said to me, take for yourselves the implements of a foolish shepherd. And what we're going to do with the rest of chapter 11, we're going to be comparing the true shepherd that Zechariah was to represent 
as compared to this foolish shepherd who is the Antichrist, which will be the end of the first coming age of Jesus. And so we're going to detail and take a look at the theology of the Antichrist, this counterfeit Jesus, and from God's perspective, the fool of fools. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your word and thank you for the great goodness that you've given to us of your word and how true it is. So true. And as we see Alexander the Great become a world history figure, as we see the Maccabean revolt become a reality, we can trust as detailed as you are about these particular historical events as you are preparing for us to get into Romans, I mean, Zechariah 12 through 14, that you're, you're coming again exactly the way Zechariah said you would. And so we're looking up. Our redemption is drawing near. To God be the glory. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.